From the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, this is Road to Resilience, a podcast about facing adversity. I'm John Earl. My guest today is Dr. Daniel Lieberman. He's a paleoanthropologist at Harvard University, where he studies the evolution of the human body, especially in regard to physical exercise. Dr. Lieberman's latest book is Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. In it, he uses scientific research to dispel 10 common myths about health and exercise. So if you've ever wondered whether you sit too much or get enough sleep or exercise right, keep listening. Dr. Lieberman, welcome to Road to Resilience. Thank you so much for having me. So everybody knows that it's important to exercise, but most people in America and throughout the industrialized West do not get enough exercise. And I think the culture is very shaming, right? It says that you don't get enough exercise. There's something wrong with you personally. You're lazy or you don't plan ahead or something to that effect. But you do not get into the shame game, which is something I really appreciate. You blame evolution. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say I blame evolution, but I think um, we need to, if we want to try to help people understand um, both, uh, you know, how, how we are the way and why we are the way we are and how to make the world a little bit of a better place, um, I think that the kind of current sort of medicalized you know, commercialized, commodified way in which we approach a lot of topics doesn't really work because it, they don't really explain how, how and why things are the way they are. And and evolution and anthropology give us important lenses to to view the world in a kind of better, more broader, more holistic way. And um, and exercise, the topic of exercise is no exception. I think it's actually very important to to think more broadly about exercise. And, and when you do, you you learn that um, you know people aren't lazy because they don't want to you know want to get on a treadmill. They're they're actually being totally normal. That's extremely reassuring. Um, say more about that. What do we learn from evolution in terms of our well, non predisposition to exercise? Two things. First is that remember. Um, you know, our bodies weren't designed, they weren't engineered, they evolved, right? So if you want to understand why, why we are the way we are, you have to understand that evolutionary history. Um, and then secondly, it's important to make a distinction between physical activity, which is just moving, right? Just doing stuff. You know, all animals have some degree of physical activity. But exercise is a, is a very special kind of physical activity. It's discretionary and voluntary. It's the sort of stuff that, you know, you choose to do. And until recently... Um, nobody did that, right? No, no, nobody, nobody chose to be physically active for the sake of health and fitness. I mean, that's really what exercise is, right? Instead, people were active because they, you know, in, in order to get food or avoid being somebody else's food, or or they were active um, when it was sort of fun, you know, when it was socially rewarding, like 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 dancing with with friends and stuff like that. But you know, getting on a treadmill for forty five minutes because it'll you know prevent heart disease or 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 something like that is is a really strange modern. A phenomenon that uh, until recently nobody ever did. In fact, it was a bad idea. Why was it a bad idea? Well, because until recently, energy was limited, right? Uh, most people until recently, almost everybody until recently, I should say, struggled to get enough energy to survive. You know, um, you know, life is a very simple equation. It's basically energy in, babies out. That's what life is all about, right? And And until recently, the energy that was available for life was limited. And all the only thing that natural selection cares about is how many babies you have who survive and reproduce. Unfortunately, that's, that's, that's all mother nature really cares about. And so when you spend a limited resource on, and, you know, on one thing, then you can't spend it on something else. So if you, like I went for a five mile run this morning and the five miles I ran cost me about 500 calories, right? 
And if I was energy limited, those would be 500 calories I couldn't sp- spend on taking care of my body or having or, or reproducing. It would be wasted. It, was, it would be a really bad idea, right? So nobody goes for a five-mile run in many parts of the world where people are struggling to get enough food, where they're, they're, they're working in fields or they're out hunting and gathering or whatever. This is, a, this is something that we choose to do now in the modern sort of developed world, the Western world, where, where we've created all kinds of, of, of machines that do our labor for us, right? So, so, so today now we have to choose to be physically active because, because our, our, our world is such that we can a- avoid physical activity all the time. So non-industrial people don't have this discrete thing called exercise that they do from 7 to 10 and uh, lift weights that only exist to be lifted, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's a completely modern, strange, Western thing. So how do they get their exercise? It sounds like simply in the, the course of normal life. They move a lot. and Well, I mean, they wouldn't call it exercise. They get physical activity, right? I mean, they, you know, they get up and they, they have to go get food. They have to work in the fields. They have to go hunt. They have to gather. They have to, you know, take care of their children. They have to make things. You know, until recently, um, all work was done either by humans or by animals. And all of a sudden, you know, in the last, you know, few generations, we've created these machines that, that do all our work for us. I mean, you can sit... All day, you can get up in the morning, and you know, magically everything is there for you, right? You don't have to do anything. You can never, you can go through your entire day without lifting, raising your heart rate, um, or breaking a sweat. And I think it gets at one of the myths that you bust in the book, which is this myth of what non-industrial people are like. There is certainly this idea kind of floating around in the culture. Anytime the word paleo comes up, I think we imagine these prehistoric he-men who are climbing trees and running around and are look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. But they're not <laughs> yeah. like that at all, are they? Our pre-industrial ancestors were not like that. And it makes sense that they weren't. Yeah, no, we've um we've we've mythologized them in all kinds of ways that are actually, I think, problematic because first of all, it dehumanizes those individuals, right? It makes, you know, treating treating sort of you know, people from other parts of the world as like somehow super athletes who are somehow endowed with special capabilities. It's just not true. They're human beings just like you and me. And for them to run long distances requires just as much effort and trouble and and determination and willpower, et cetera. They don't just magically get up and run ultra marathons or whatever. But the, and they're not ripped and jacked, you know, like like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, but the other problem is it makes us feel somehow bad, right? Like that somehow we've been contaminated by civilization. So that the the shoes that you wear or the Gatorade you might drink or whatever, you know, whether they're good or bad, somehow they've you know, turned us into kind of you know, wimps, right? And that if we just got rid of those things, we would suddenly magically be able to, you know, swim the English Channel or, you know, whatever you, you know, your, your, your fantasy is. Uh, and that's not true at all either. And I think it's sort of damaging. I think we, we, we end up being very non-compassionate, not only to others, but also to ourselves, right? You know, we've all experienced being in a subway or a, a mall or an airport or something like that, where there's a stairway next to an escalator, right? And, and there's that little voice in your head which says, take the escalator, right? We all know that voice, um, even though escalators obviously didn't exist in the Stone Age. And that's because it's a deep and fundamental and basic instinct to avoid unnecessary physical activity. And, 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 and then we make, make ourselves feel bad or we make people feel bad for, for that little voice. But we need to understand that that's a ter- perfectly normal instinct. And, and, and it's just that we now live in a very strange modern world where all of a sudden we, it, it's now beneficial to overcome that instinct, and it didn't used to be that way. Sitting is another thing that people obsess about. Well, yeah, partly because of the way in which health information is provided to the public, right? We, we, we demonize sitting, right? The, the expression 
that is common these days is that sitting is the new smoking, right? Or your chair is out to kill you, right? And um, and I think that's real problematic for for a number of reasons. The first is, look, you don't have to be a, a you know PhD in in you know exercise science or a physician or whatever to realize that's hyperbole, right? Your chair is not out to kill you. It's not a it's not a toxin like a cigarette, right? And and furthermore, if you you know travel around the, the world, I've had the good fortune to spend time in in various places where people don't have chairs even, right? Um, they just sit on the ground <laughs> or, or if they have chairs, they're just simple benches and stools. There's no, there's no seat back to their chairs. And they turn out to just sit as much as we do, right? It's normal to sit. My dog spends her day sitting all around the house. I mean, let's not demonize sitting or say that somehow sitting is a strange modern Western thing. It is true, however, um, and we can learn from studying sitting in other cultures that there are better and worse ways to sit, right? And so... Uh, you know, there's more active sitting where you, you know, maybe not have a backrest, and so you're using your muscles in your back, or you're sitting on the ground and you're using your leg muscles a little bit, and also certainly getting up every once in a while, what we call active sitting. So, you know, interrupting bouts, long-term bouts of sitting. Up in the in the old days, people, you know, didn't have you know movies to watch where they sat, you know, completely inert for two hours at a time. Right? They have to get up all the time to take care of their kids and the fire. All that little occasional getting up is really healthy. It's really good for you. So. Um, so let's let's relax a little bit at sitting. Yes, it's it's good not to sit all day long. It's good to get physical activity, but let's not like scare people and make them feel bad for something as natural and normal as sitting. And fidgeters can rejoice too, can't they? Oh, fidgeting is good for you. Yeah, there's no question <laughs> about it. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite parts of the book was the sleep chapter. Um, man, sleep is something for me personally. I obsess a lot about all about getting the right mattress, creating the right circumstances a lot of stress associated with sleep. And you have this great line that I want to read. You write, if you require quiet and dark to fall asleep, you are evolutionarily unusual. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I mean, we've, in the modern Western world, we've, we, we, we make people stressed about sleep, right? And, and if you go to different cultures and just think about how people sleep in, in you know, hunter-gatherer groups or in, you know, various you know, villages, et cetera, all over the world, um, people sleep in, in very chaotic conditions, right? And um, um, they sleep together, there's outside sounds, et cetera. But we've created this world in the, in the West where we, where we isolate ourselves and we make sure it's pitch dark and there's no sounds, et cetera. We get really nervous about it. And, and when we hear things, it kind of makes us upset. Of course, when you get upset and nervous, what happens? Your cortisol levels go up. Cortisol is a stress hormone. It's an arousal hormone. And it it goes up when you're stressed. It doesn't make you stressed, and but it keeps you awake. It keeps you alert because it's a fight and flight hormone. And and of course, when once you're stressed, then your sleep is gone. Right, sleep is vanished. Right, and so so much of what we do about people's sleep today makes them aroused and nervous. Right, we tell them they need eight hours of sleep. We tell them they need to have the perfect mattress. They need to tell them you know that people can sleep in you know, in, in boats, they can sleep on, in, on, on, in airplanes, people sleep in, on, in, you know, in piles of human beings and stuff like that. Um, if we just help people relax about sleep, everybody would sleep better. Um, and, and one of the worst things we do is we tell people they need eight, eight hours of sleep. And that's just a fiction. It turns out that people in, 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 you know, the idea, the idea is that in the modern Western world where we have telephones and iPhones and, you know, all those 
electric lights, all these things that, that keep us up that, you know, we now don't sleep as much as we used to. But when you go out and study people who don't have electricity and don't have iPhones and TVs, it turns out they don't sleep eight hours. They sleep like six to seven hours. Um, and furthermore, even epidemiological data show us that that um, there's nothing magical about, about eight hours. In fact, it turns out that seven hours turns out for most people to be actually more better associated with long-term health outcomes than, than eight hours. And it's completely normal, too, for people to be morning people, not morning people. That all makes evolutionary sense, right? Yeah. To have some groups of, us are of larks. diverse sleepers. Yeah. Some of us are larks. Some of us are owls. It turns out to be genetic. And there's a lot of variation within populations. And it actually, it's a really good idea because it makes sure that it helps make sure that somebody's awake all the time in a, in a, in a, in a camp, right? So that, you know, if hyenas or lions come, somebody's awake, right? It's a good thing. So, so if you're a lark or you're an owl, don't fight it. You know, go with it. And there's no virtue associated with it, just what you are. No, well, there's so much virtue <laughs> signaling associated with health in general, about the diet and, you know, the people with the 26.2 stickers on their cars and whatever. I mean, The 10,000 steps. The, yeah, I mean, the virtue signaling doesn't help, right? It just, well, maybe makes the virtue signalers feel better, but it doesn't help the rest of us. You must go through the world with perpetual eye roll. <laughs> <laughs> or, yeah, and perhaps I create a lot of eye rolls, too. <laughs> there we are. Ever thought about enrolling in a clinical trial? The Mount Sinai Health System has over 800 active clinical trials, each geared toward developing new medicines and treatments. Visit mountsinai.org slash clinical dash trials to see if you're eligible. Mount Sinai, we find a way. Yeah, it's again and again in the book, and this is one thing I love about it. It's just like, what you think is normal? Forget that. Lots of things can be normal. Lots of things can work. Um, there are very few, if any, in this book, I think, uh, lines to the effect of something, something is normal. That's the way it's done. That's the way I recommend it. It's always, well, there's a diversity of things that work for people. And that's very reassuring. That's right. And that's how evolution works. I mean, look, the, my, a colleague of mine coined the term weird, Western educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And, 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 and um, that's the world that, in which most of the readers of my book um, and the listeners of this podcast are in right we're in the in the weird world right but but weird people which which comprise you know ninety percent of the data that we have on on human behavior on human health comprise only about ten percent of the world actually and and for and of course it's only very recently that we've been weird and um and so there's an enormous benefit to step out of our shoes and realize that you know how people live in New York or Boston or l a or whatever you happen to be or even you know even Duluth or you know Des Moines or wherever you want to be in the U.S., but that's not a normal way to live from an evolutionary perspective or from an anthropological perspective. And hmm. it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the way we live, but, um, but we have a lot to learn by looking at variation. It makes me think of a question that I wanted to ask you, which is you, you know, travel around the world studying non-industrial people. What's the reaction or the range of reactions typically when you show up to, to do field work and you have your instruments and you're measuring feet and you're asking people to do things that they... <laughs> Maybe think are a little strange. What do they well, make of your curiosity? Well, people try. I mean, look. First of all, we always try to work with communities, right? We don't just like show up, and, <laughs> and you know, we always work with people and try to and try to make sure people feel valued. But of course, you know, I mean, you know, when you show up with weird machines, that you know, you're a bit of a curiosity, and sometimes they think I'm pretty funny. Like when I go for a morning run, you know, in some of these places, people <laughs> laugh and and you know, tease me. Um, and they wonder why I'm asking these strange questions. Um, 
But um, I think, you know, people are people, and we understand that the world is very different, and people come from different cultures, and they're curious about me just as I'm curious about them. And um, they, they, they understand it. You know, I think the more I travel and more I experience different cultures, yes, the, the more you see how variable people are and how varied cultures are. But on the other hand, you also realize that, you know, scratch below the surface and people are people. And we all have, have there's, there's a lot more that unites us than divides us. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I don't think about that very much. This is jumping ahead a little bit to some of the advice that you do give because you're very cautious about giving, you know, straight up advice. You talk about making exercise social, among other things, as a way to get over the evolutionary hump. And one example you give is dancing. I love the part on dancing. You write, I know of no non-industrial culture in which men and women didn't dance for hours on a regular basis. It's true. And even in the West, dancing is a cultural universal. And 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 dancing is, you know, when People dance, they do it for, for long periods of time. They don't just like do one five-minute song, right? Um, I can think back on wonderful occasions in different parts of the world that I've been to where people just dance all night long. Um, I'm actually often a wimp and I'm off, sometimes the first to go to bed. But, um, <laughs> um, but, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, in Africa and in, 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 in Asia and in, in Central America, people dance. And, 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 and we did too, like, you know, I think I mentioned in the book, Jane Austen novels, she describes dances and how people, you know, dance till three or four in the morning, right? Um, there's something very strange about the modern world in which we're now so isolated and insecure and, and I don't know what's going on, but we, we stopped dancing in the same way that we used to. Um, and I mean, a few people do, but, but most of us don't. That's another weird thing about, about sort of modern Western American culture. So let's get into some of the prescriptions. Tell us about some of the ways that some people can overcome evolution and actually get moving. Well, first, first, let me ask you, what sort of exercises do people actually need to do? What is scientifically based? <laughs> All right. Sort so of a the minimum, prescription question. Yeah. Okay. That's the Western approach to exercise, right? What do you need, right? How many pills should I take, doctor? How many right? minutes? Right. And, How many steps? And, you know, that's part of the problem, right? I think, I think, um, I think that's a really bad approach. I mean, I, yes, I understand why we do it and it's part of our culture and, 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 and so on. But, but here's, here's the, here's the truth, right? The truth is that any physical activity is better than none. So if you are completely physically inactive and unfit and you just do just a little bit more, you'll get some benefit out of it. And, and the World Health Organization and the American Health you know, Heart Association and the Surgeon General and every sort of major health organization on the planet recommends a minimum of 150 minutes a week of moderate exercise, which is what, 21 minutes a day or 75 minutes a week of vigorous exercise. So moderate is like a brisk walk, vigorous is like a run. Um, and if you do that, according to the epidemiological data from large samples suggests that your, your mortality rate will decline by about 50%. But if you do just 60 minutes a week, so that's just eight minutes a day, right, of, of moderate exercise, you can still lower your mortality risk by about 30%. I mean, that's, that's still an improvement, right? So there is no minimum, right? Anything is better than none, right? And there's no, nothing magical about 150. That's just, a, that's just a kind of a general benchmark that everybody's sort of agreed on by collectively. But there's no, there's no magical number there, right? If you do more, you'll get even more benefit, right? Uh, another thing that I think everybody knows is that mixing it up is good for you, right? Nobody got fit just doing one thing, right? You know, you need to do some strength training to stay strong. Aerobic physical activity, you know, uh, is, is the bedrock of pretty much any 
any exercise routine, but so that's also important. And it's good sometimes to do it a little bit intense, get your heart rate up, right? So, you know, it's pretty simple. You know, some is better than none. More is a little bit better than, than some, if you can do it. Mix it up, relax, do the stuff that you enjoy. Because if you don't enjoy it, you're not going to get any reward. You're not going to do it again. Uh, and keep it up as you get older. Because the older we get, the more important physical activity is. It doesn't become less important. It actually becomes more important. Right. True. But since we're talking to our Western selves... You seem to jive, if I'm understanding correctly, with the 150 minutes in terms of what the research says is that this is sort of a a good benchmark, not a perfect benchmark, but a good one for beginning to really cut into risks of things like cancer and heart disease and et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm not opposed to the 150-minute benchmark. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very good, sensible, normal benchmark, but there's no magical number and it's not a magic bullet, right? You know, it's not going to... Um, but it but it will decrease your vulnerability to a wide range of diseases substantially. Yeah, talk about that part a little bit, because I don't think that's something we've touched on so far. Certainly, I have a, a vague idea in my head of exercise reduces your risk of a range of diseases. Can you just kind of take us through that a little bit? Sure. Well, there's two issues. One is the, just the, the epidemiological evidence, right? How much exercise on the x-axis and how much it reduces your risk of, say, Alzheimer's on the y-axis, right? And And... and um, you know, there's just tons of data which show that, um, you know, for example, if you're worried about Alzheimer's, pretty much the only thing you can do actually to prevent Alzheimer's is exercise. And it's by far the most beneficial thing. You know, you know the estimates vary, but you can lower your risk between like 30 and 50% um, by, by exercising moderately. There's nothing, nothing comes close. Um, and the same is true for cancers, breast cancer, for example. You know, there's a lot of studies which show that, again, the, the, the amounts vary, but you can lower, women can substantially lower their risk of breast cancer by, you know, 30, 40, some estimates up to 50% um, by sort of moderate levels of regular physical activity. Why don't we tell more people this, right? Um, and the list goes on, right? But the question really is, why is that the case? And, and the reason for that um, is that it's sort of twofold. First, exercise, physical activity uh, prevents our bodies from spending excess energy on things that make us sick, right? You know, too much fat or too many hormones. Like, so if you, you know, when you exercise, your levels of estrogen and progesterone, for example, uh, go down to actually normal levels. A better way of saying that is if you don't exercise, your levels of estrogen and progesterone rise to abnormal levels. That's actually a more correct statement. And of course, those hormones are mitotic. They cause cell division and increase your chances of cancer. But the other maybe even more important way, or the other equally important way that exercise is good for you is that it um, it causes stress. But it's good stress, right? The stress that the body's used to. So every time you exercise, you're producing little kind of reactive molecules called reactive oxygen species that um, can cause damage throughout your body, right? And um, it can cause mutations in DNA. It can cause... Um, you know, damage to cells, all that causes inflammation. It causes a whole range of pathophysiological processes. But because we always were physically active, our bodies evolved incredible range of mechanisms to deal with every single one of those stresses. When you exercise, you produce antioxidants. When you exercise, you tamp down inflammation. In fact, your muscles are the major organ that regulates inflammation in your body. So all that physical activity does is turns on all these repair and maintenance mechanisms that keep us healthy. And here's the thing, we never evolved to turn them on to the same extent in the absence of physical activity because we were never permanently sedentary. So that's why being relentlessly physically inactive makes you much more vulnerable 
to this incredibly wide range of diseases. Is it also true that if you are physically active and physically healthy, you are um, better able to deal with adversity, whether it's disease or, you know, traumatic events or things like that? Have you looked into that at all? Well, I'm not an expert on mental health, but there's a lot of data which shows <clears throat> that physical activity has incredible you know, short-term benefits for mental health, right? We, you know, we've been talking right now about the long-term benefits in terms of heart disease and diabetes and cancer, et cetera. But I mean, everybody knows that, that you can go for a walk or a run or a swim or something like that and climb a mountain, do something, you know, and you, you feel better. I mean, everybody knows that, right? And it's not, it's not simply because you're outside or talking to friends, so that's part of it. It's also because physical activity turns on a whole host of processes in, in our brains that are you know, good. They, you produce dopamine, you produce serotonin, you produce epinephrine, you produce uh, this, this molecule called brain-derived neurotropic growth factor, BDNF, which, is, which has been described by some people as miracle growth for the brain, and it really is. And you produce you know, all kinds of like, good stuff that happens that um, has immediate effects on mood. And so like, you know, we all know the experience. Like, I, I often go for runs early in the morning with a friend of mine, and, and uh, we often arrange to meet like, you know, at 6 or 7, some horrible hour early in the morning. And I never want to be there at 6 in the morning. Never, ever. Ever, not, not once, <laughs> have I ever wanted to run at six in the morning. And yet I'm always glad afterwards that I did, right? Um, because I, when I get back from the run, I've got all this good stuff floating around in my brain that makes me kind of happy. So let's just go through the things that you do at 6 a.m. to get yourself out the door. So you've made it social. You have a plan and a schedule. Do you lay out your clothes or do some of those other tricks oh, yes. that you include? Yeah, so I always lay my clothes out. So when I get up, you know, to walk the dog and, you know, stumble to the bathroom... I put on my running clothes, um, and then I don't have an excuse not to <laughs> not to go out the door. But but um, um, but also, um, I um, you know I, again, if I have to meet my you know friend at, in the corner, you know I, I have to be there. Otherwise, you know my friend will be irritated that I'm not there. Right. So there's a kind of a self coercion. Um, I, I sign up for races, um, not so much because I love the races, but because it forces me to train. Right. It gives me a goal. It's a carrot um, or a stick, depending upon your your perspective. Um, and also, um, by being sort of social about it, I kind of then become responsible to others. Like, you know, people, you know, in my particular case, I'm a, it's well known that I, I, I run and I study running and physical activity. So if I don't do it, I'd be a hypocrite. <laughs> you know, you laugh, but it's true. It actually is an important motivator, right? Um, nobody wants to be a hypocrite. Like, for example, you know, when I get to my building um, and, and I want to take the elevator up to the fifth floor, but if I take the elevator and anybody catches me in the elevator, <laughs> I'm in trouble, right? Uh, so I can't. So I take the stairs. And I'm usually glad by the time I get to the top that I did take the stairs, although I kind of grumble for the first few flights. What was the most fun part of the book to work on for you? Uh, well, I, I enjoyed some of the the trips I did, um, which I did in order to you know, write particular chapters. So I really enjoyed going to the Bjornborg Sports Company. That was hilarious. As uh, For those of you who haven't read the book yet, I hope, hope you do. Um, that's a company in Sweden. It's the only one in the world, I think, that requires all of its employees to exercise. So I went there to see what that was like. I, I, did, I ran in the man against horse race in Arizona. That was kind of fun. How did I, that go? I, I beat most of the horses. It was great. <laughs> um, um, even middle-aged professor like me, I... I um, I um I went to a mixed martial arts fight, which I would never otherwise do, to kind of see what that's like. So I you know I, I did a lot of participant observation, right? Um, 
kind of, once I knew I was writing the book, of course, I've been doing lots of stuff beforehand too. Um, but all of that kind of made it kind of fun because, you know, trying to put yourself in somebody else's shoes or try new experiences. And I, I, there are certain chapters of the book I really enjoyed writing. I, I particularly enjoyed writing the chapter on sports and, 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 and fighting because I really hadn't thought much about that. And, and I'm really most proud about the chapter on aging because I think really in some ways that's the most important part of the book, which is the idea that we evolve not to, not to get less active as we get older, but to become more active as we get older, mm. just how important that is for our health. So no passive retirement. That's a very modern, weird thing. That's, that's for sure. You know, people, have, there's this idea out there that until recently humans died young, you know, that lives were nasty, brutish, and short. But that's actually not true. Uh, before, the industri- before the agricultural revolution, before people started farming, hunter-gatherers has, uh, lived typically about seven decades. And that means that people generally lived about two decades after they stopped reproducing. But those sort of those sort of grandparent years of, you know, 20, 30 years of being a grandparent weren't about just sort of, you know, retiring and going to Florida and like, you know, playing golf and basically doing nothing. Those are times when people actually worked to help their children and their grandchildren. So foragers, you know, who are elderly, you know, grandparent foragers go out every day, just like when they were younger and they go out and they hunt and they gather, they forage, they work or they work in fields and they're farmers um, and they help provide food and they help take care of children and grandchildren and and provide food and calories. And and that's that was normal, right? And and this idea that we can just sort of take it easy when we get older really works to our detriment because you tr- starts this vicious cycle of of physical inactivity and and then we become frail and then that frailty makes you less likely to be active. But also it doesn't turn on those critical repair and maintenance mechanisms which keep senescence at bay, which keep us from aging as fast as we do. And, and so, so the, the evidence is clear. There's no question about it that numerous studies have shown that as you get older, physical activity is more important for preserving health, not less important. And that has a, an ancient, deep, and basic evolutionary origin. What's a mystery that remains for you? Something that you're puzzling over or exploring that you haven't quite answered yet? Oh, well, I mean, I think that's easy one to answer. The, the, the biggest mystery still is how do we help people motivate people who are disinclined to exercise? How do we help them help them help themselves? I mean, almost everybody wants to do it. Right? I've never, I've very rarely met anybody who says, who's inactive, who says, oh, you know, I'm, I'm happy being inactive. They, you know, they talk about how they're stressed. They find, they find it hard to find the time. They just don't enjoy it. They don't get a reward out of it. And although I've been thinking about it, we, we, none of us have yet really come up with a really good solution to that problem. How do you help people? That's, to me, the, 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 the key issue. And, and it may be an unsolvable problem, but I think we need to be much more creative and find solutions. Because what we're doing today just isn't working. I mean, it works for a few people, but for the vast majority of, 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 of people in this country, um, you know, 80% approximately, according to the CDC, are just not getting minimal levels of, of physical activity. So... So we have a lot of work to do. Do you have any sense of what the solution might look like? Is it a policy solution? Uh, I think it's going to be a, a kitchen sink approach. There's going to be no one solution. I think it's going to be a cultural solution. I think it's going to have to be policy. I mean, I think schools have to step up to the game. I mean, it's it's just outrageous how few schools actually have sufficient levels of physical activity for kids. And people develop their habits when they're when they're not just in in, in, in you know youngsters, but also in college and and colleges have 
are outrageous, right? It used to be that every college in America required some kind of physical education, physical activity. And now most don't, and those that do have just basically pitiful requirements. And you try to, you know, at, at Harvard, for example, I've t- talked about my colleagues, and they look in horror and shock, like, oh my God, you'd require them to be active? And yet these are colleagues who have no problem requiring people to learn languages and learn calculus and learn this, learn that. You know, um, you know we're a very... You know, we're great at coming up with requirements, but somehow, you know, the body, we have this idea that minds and bodies are totally different things, right? And, um, and they're not. They're t- intimately connected. And, and, and so we need to change uh, our culture in a variety of ways and stop being so dismissive of, of prevention and, and preserving health and, and think more about, you know, treating uh, causes, not just symptoms. Thanks so much for being on the podcast, Dr. Lieberman. My pleasure. Dr. Daniel Lieberman is a paleoanthropologist at Harvard University. His latest book is Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. That's all for this episode of Road to Resilience. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us. We've also got a listener survey going where you can tell us what you think about the show and recommend guests. We'll put a link in the show notes. The podcast is a production of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's made by Nikki Cheatham, me, John Earl, and our executive producer, Lucille Lee. From all of us here, as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.